the destruction of the temple and signs of the end of times. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors and on all account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your advisories will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against his people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There'll be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be anguish, in anguish and perplexity at its roaring and tossing of the sea. People faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my, but my words will never pass away. 
Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with the carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day will be close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is happening and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I'd like to thank uh, our pastor for giving me a nice, uplifting, straightforward passage to preach on this morning. Bless you, brother. As it happens, I think, all of the things that have happened this morning to do with uh, electricity are actually really apt and helpful. Um, the thing about um, financial legacies being left are really, really helpful. Um, this clearly is a very difficult passage to understand. It's a difficult passage to preach on. I like a challenge. I hope you like a challenge. I hope that you're ready this morning to do some thinking. Um, we're going to have to range outside of this passage to make sense of it all. Okay, so if you have a Bible near you, you want to follow along, then please do. But equally, don't worry if you don't. Um, just out of interest, just so you know, I've, I've made 10 copies of my notes, and they're on the back table, just in case you miss things, or you're confused, or you want to talk more about these things, um, and if you want to take any of these notes away at the end, please do. That's not me being arrogant, that's me just recognizing this is a complex passage, and I don't want to lose people in the detail of it this morning, that's my prayer. Um, but it, it is a passage that requires some thought, I think, if it's going to be helpful to us, and help guide the way that we live today. Um, but if you doze off, if there's a fire alarm, if the electricity goes again, if this building were to fall to the ground, the one thing I want you to take away is that, that we are called to stand firm in our faith despite circumstances around us. And if we do so, we are promised that we will win life. We will win life in this life and beyond. So if you take nothing else away, there you go. It's the heart of the passage as far as I'm concerned. So if you miss everything else, don't worry about it. You've got the gist of it. But we need to make sense of this passage. And I think in order to make sense of the passage, we need to understand something about the temple. We need to understand something about the temple. Because this passage largely is about the destruction of the temple and the destruction um, in Jerusalem um, after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. And we actually really need to understand that. Um, I'm going to be slightly bold straight away and tell you, I don't think this passage is about the second coming of Christ. And I'll come back to that later. Okay? It is a passage, first and foremost, that's a prophecy about what will happen in Jerusalem and to the temple. And by the way, everybody, that prophecy came through in around AD 70. Everything that Jesus says here happens 70-ish years later. 
All right? Well, a bit, actually, no, 40-ish years later. I need to do my maths. Sorry about that. 40-ish years later. So on one level, this is just a prophecy that comes true, which in itself is pretty remarkable. But obviously, it works on lots of other levels as well, because that's what prophecy does, and it speaks to us today. So we're going to unpick a little bit of that as well. Um, and here we go. I'm going to hopefully, yes, are you going to stay with me on the back with the slides? That will be great. They're kind of fixing things as well. So AD 70, what do we know about the temple? Well, we know that it was a national symbol. We know that it was a national symbol. It was an epicenter of culture, of religion, of history, of finance and economics. When people, uh, people did pilgrimages to this place, when people called themselves Jews, they were thinking very much about the temple. And the, that religion was very much rooted in the temple as being the center of everything. And if you go right back into Exodus, we see why. Because the tabernacle which became the temple was created or instituted by Moses on God's instructions because he wanted to dwell with his people. That's what the temple meant. It was supposed to be the place where God would dwell. And so if you wanted to access God, that is where you went. So the temple was of huge significance. It was of huge significance. And we're told by Josephus, who is a writer who wrote a Jewish history called uh, Jewish War or the Jewish Wars, um, that this particular temple, whatever was not overlaid with gold, was purest white. This was an incredibly opulent, beautiful, just fantastic, awe-inspiring temple created by people in honor of God. Everything was gold. Everything was white. It was gleaming. It was a badge of civilization. It was the very heart of the Jewish faith. It was the place where God dwelt. And so it should be ornate and it should be beautiful and it should be a place that inspires worship. And there is nothing wrong with some of those things, although there are traps which we're going to explore later. And so Jesus knew that when that temple was destroyed, that was going to be an earth-shattering moment for all of those people who called themselves Jews. It was striking at the very heart of everything they believed in and stood for. And those problems still exist today, of course, in Jerusalem, in terms of who has responsibility for certain parts and holy sites. It is still the case that that part of the world is absolutely vital to any understanding of the Jewish faith. So it being destroyed was cataclysmic. It was earth-shattering. It required of the people a paradigm shift, a redefinition of what it means to be the people of God. And Jesus knew that was going to be the case. And so what he does, I believe, in this passage is try to help his followers to make that paradigm shift, that change of understanding and values before the temple is destroyed. Because what he's saying to his people is, the temple here will pass away and therefore, you must not rely upon it to stand firm in your faith. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Next slide, please. This is a contemporary image of a similar temple which had a huge amount of significance in the modern world in a capitalist society which was destroyed and forced people to reevaluate their values, their fears, their hopes, and their dreams. So this isn't exclusive to the destruction of Jerusalem. This kind of stuff happens. Human beings build temples. And there are times in human history 
when temples fall away and are destroyed. And what Jesus is saying to us in this passage is, do not put your faith in the wrong temple. Because the stuff we build, everybody, including this beautiful building that we're stood in now, will fall away. Kind of encouraging in a way. We'll get why it's encouraging later, I'm sure. But let's just, I want to prove the point. Human beings build temples, okay? It's in the scriptures. So if you go right back to the beginning of, of the Bible uh, in Genesis, you'll remember that it begins with the Garden of Eden and then um, Adam and Eve and the fall and, people, and, and human beings are ejected from the garden. And pretty soon afterwards, what they do is they start to build temples. They start to build cities and temples. So you'll know about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll know, hopefully, the story of the Tower of Babel. And the idea of the Tower of Babel was that the people gathered together and they built this incredibly huge tower so it was stretched to the heavens, not unlike some of the skyscrapers that we see today. And this is what they say. They say, we build this temple, why? Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? So that we may make a name for ourselves. That's why people build temples. Because we want to make a name for ourselves. You know, it's an attempt to win life. It's an attempt to win life. You know, I, I often look around, especially when I'm playing over there, and I see these beautiful plaques on the walls of this building, people whose names are, are being preserved. And, and it's beautiful. It is. This is a beautiful building. And I'm not being critical of any of these people. I'm sure they're wonderful, faithful servants of the Lord. But... Having a plaque on a wall is another attempt to preserve life. It's having my name remembered, isn't it? And there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's not your motivation. Okay? And sometimes we build temples because we're attempting to win life for ourselves. Agreed? You with me on this one? Excellent. Good. There's a, there's a brilliant poem called Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. I don't know if any of you have come across it. Um, it's a beautiful poem. I think I've got time. I'm just going to read it for you because it's nice and short. It's kind of sonnet length. I'm just going to read it for you. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculpture well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things the hands that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I don't know if you've come across that poem, it's beautiful. And what Shelley is saying to us is, doesn't matter how powerful you are, how rich you are, how great you think you are, if you seek to build something to preserve your own image and your name, it will pass away. It will pass away. Starting with a downer, by the way. And this is why, next slide please. The temple is not the source of life. This place, everybody, is not the source of life. I love this church. 
I probably love it less than some of you have been coming 40 years or more, but it's beautiful. I love it. I love meeting here. It feels like a holy place, but it's not the source of life. And actually, what a great metaphor, the electrics going off this morning. What happened? Ah, do you know what? The temple stopped working. How brilliant was that for my talk? The temple stopped working. Did we suddenly have a downgrade of life? Absolutely not. Did we still worship? Yes. Was God still here? Yes. Was the spirit still moving? Yes. Do we need a screen? No. (laughs) And I'm someone who likes gadgets. We do not need it. This is the first point, everybody. We build temples because we seek life. We seek eternal significance because that's what human beings yearn for. It's imprinted in us. There must be more than this. How can I live beyond this? Surely my 80, 90, 100 years is not sufficient. It's a reaction to mortality, everybody. Completely understandable, but not what Christ wants us to do as his people. The work of humans will always pass away, no matter how well constructed is the first point. Everyone happy so far? First point, brilliant. So this passage about, you know, Jesus saying, temple's going to be destroyed, everything's going to be laid waste. He's saying all these things that you've put your faith into up to now are going to go. And he's saying that to us today as well. Okay, if your faith is in anything other than Christ, it will be destroyed at some point. Either because it will decay and fall, or it will be actively destroyed, like in AD 70, but it will fall because it's human maze. Yes? You with me, James? Yeah, good. Glad you're smiling at me. I'm not targeting you specifically. <laughs> okay, so what's the danger with temples? Let's just explore that a little bit. Next slide, please. Building temples is life-depriving, or can be, if it's built in the wrong spirit. If you go back to Exodus, and when they first built the tabernacle, it's true that there were commands there about how much gold should be this, and this should be that. But the point of it was that people were bringing a sacrifice as an act of humility and worship to God. They brought their stuff. And when we give our monthly tithes, that's quite right. That's quite right. That's partly about our hearts. But the problem is, if we start to worship or attach too much value to the stuff that we create around us with that money, it can become a problem. And we see that really, really clearly, don't we, in, in, in John's Gospel, where Jesus drives out the moneylenders. You know the moment? You know the moment? He goes in to the temple, and what does he find? An economy, an economic system. And the temple itself had become something that wasn't righteous, that wasn't honoring to God. So what does he do? He made a whip out of cords, it tells us, and he drove all from the temple courts, driving people out of the temple. This place is not good for you, he says. He says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. We mustn't do that. And there are many ways that we could if we make our temple too shiny. It becomes very tempting, doesn't it? And what happens is actually the shiny temple starts to take life away from the worship life of the community. It deprives life. You with me? It's true? Are we happy? A little bit challenging, that's okay. We have to make sure this place isn't a temple that deprives life, that we don't worry about, you know, what color the walls are and whether the carpets are neat and tidy. I'm not saying those things are intrinsically bad, they just mustn't become the focus. It mustn't become the focus because then it becomes about the temple. And we know that that leads to the temple becoming a marketplace. That image earlier of the market just outside the um, abbey was interesting. Christmas market. It visually interested me. 
There's a great parable for this, isn't there, in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're told in Matthew 7, verse 24, that the wise man builds his house upon the rock. You know this parable? And the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And why is it foolish to build upon the sand? Because it shifts and it, it erodes and it falls away. You know, basing our faith in the temple is like building a house on sand. It will fall away. It will shift. What does the wise man do? Well, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. And we're going to get into who the rock is in a moment. But I think you know where I'm going with this. And what we're told in that parable is that when the rain comes down, very apt at the moment, and the streams rise and the winds blow, what happens? It falls with a great crash. Okay? Clearly the case. The things that we seek to build will fall. See, if we spend our time, friends, building foundations on shifting sands, it will lead to vanity. It will lead to pride. It will lead to misplaced faith in the works of human beings. And ultimately, it will lead to failure. And all of this actually takes us away from the life that God wants for us. We're not winning life if we're doing that. So, I made a quick list of some modern temples. I hope this isn't too challenging or controversial. I know one of them is, but I'm going to go for it because, you know, I love you and you love me and you'll forgive me, I'm sure. Some modern temples. I'm not just talking about buildings now. Capitalism is a modern temple which people put their faith in. Yes? Democracy is a modern temple which people possibly put slightly less faith in right now. But we're seeing it fall, aren't we? Shifting sands, yes? These are temples. Technology, Amazon, Google. These are modern temples, my friends. I just ordered a board game yesterday, you know, two days ago. Uh, I, someone gave me an Amazon voucher, which was very, I was very happy about it. You know, next day delivery, and my, my son was getting a bit shifty because it hadn't arrived by 3 p.m. Modern temple, the consumerist and there's a temple of data going on behind that as well. Liberalism is a modern temple. Our values, our liberal values. None of these things are intrinsically bad, by the way, unless they become temples and the object of our worship. Liberalism. Europe, the European Union, is a modern temple. The housing market is a modern temple. When Hannah and I first got married, we were told, you must buy a house. You must buy a house. Get yourself on the market. Give yourself security. That was in 2018. Thanks, Tim. Church denominations can be a modern temple, can't they? I won't say much more, but they can. All of these things eventually fall. They will, because they're human-made. All these things will fall. And in the meantime, there is the potential for them to deprive us of life. We mustn't build our lives on shifting Sands. And in Psalm 118, it says this. Thank you, next slide. Psalm 118, a brilliant psalm. It is better, says the psalmist, this is ancient knowledge, to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. It's encouraging, by the way, I hope. These are not modern problems that we're facing. <laughs> These are not modern problems that we're facing. These are human problems, and there is only one solution, which we're going to end on, you'll be happy to know. 
And that's the bit where all the hope comes. But thinking about the temple, and this is where we're just going to backtrack a little bit, we've got to think about the original design. You know, God didn't design human beings to meet with him in a temple. That wasn't what he did, but not the temple that we make out of stone. If you go back to the original design, it was about a garden. You remember that, of course, beginning of Genesis. It's a garden. It's natural. It's this, you know, the temple is this earth that we're all on. And the original design was that I'm going to make people to be my companions and I'm going to walk beside them. We don't need a temple. I'm just going to walk with them. And it says there that God was walking in the cool of the day. He's walking with them. And then what happens, as we know, is the fall. And then we have moving into Exodus. And then the interim project was the tabernacle. It was like, I've got to find a way of meeting with my people because I'm righteous and holy. They're absolutely not. How can we exist in the same space? And so he came up, God, with the tabernacle system that we read in Exodus, where we're going to have this place and we're going to call it the tabernacle and there's going to be holy bits and less holy bits. And even just to go in, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. And the whole system was designed so that God could meet with his people. That's what the temple was supposed to be for. But actually, it was, it was his second choice, wasn't it? God wanted just to walk with us in the garden. And we made that impossible. And so the tabernacle actually was a kind of interim step. I want to be with my people on the journey that they're on. How can I make that happen? Let's have a system. Let's have a tabernacle-type system to enable it to be possible for people to come to know me, even though something just isn't right in our relationship. It was an interim step. It was never supposed to be the final design. Of course, we know the final design because it's Christ. Next slide, please. The new design. You'll remember that when Christ was crucified, we're told in Matthew 27 that the veil, the curtain was torn. Do you all remember that? The moment of crucifixion, the veil was torn. What that symbolized was that this temple thing, this need to go through certain processes to get access to God, had been fundamentally shifted. The destruction of the temple later was just what happened next. But actually, the moment of change was the moment that the veil was torn. And that tearing of the veil says to us, we can now enter in because the temple, friends, is Christ. The temple is now Christ. Do you remember that Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days? Do you remember that? And, and people said, what do you mean? It took us years to build this temple. And, he, and, he, and it says, he was talking about himself. Christ is our temple. And this is God's new design. We don't need a building anymore to come into the presence of the Lord. Praise God for that. We certainly don't need electronics and PowerPoints to come into the presence of the Lord. We can do it at home in our bedrooms we can enter into the Holy of Holies because of Christ. That is fantastic news. That's the gospel, everybody. And this passage is about that. He says this, this temple's going to break. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Chaos is going to ensue. But stand firm because you have a new temple. You do not require to be geographically in Jerusalem to meet with me anymore. So don't worry. Yes, it's going to be hideous. But it's not going to stop you meeting with me, is what Christ says to his people. And that is just so encouraging. Today, when we see these temples around us crumbling, to know that we can still meet with the Lord of all creation. Yes? That's encouraging, isn't it? 
What great news. It looks like a really depressing passage, doesn't it? About destruction and everyone's going to die. It's going to be terrible and persecution. And it is, but there is a meaning in this passage that is about hope. There is a new temple, everybody. The game has changed. And this image of the Son of Man isn't about the second coming. It's about the ascension. If you look at Daniel 7, you'll see that the Son of Man riding in the clouds is approaching the Ancient of Days. Not this way, that way. Because the resurrection of Christ and the ascension into God's presence is the establishment of the new kingdom. It is a joyous thing. You know, we're told in Daniel 7, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That's where the idea comes from that Jesus uses. Coming with the clouds of heaven. We all know that bit. We sang about it this morning. We discussed this, didn't we? Often confused with the second coming of Christ. But what what does the son of man do on the clouds? approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. It's not this way, it's that way. The ascension of Christ is the establishment of the new temple, the new kingdom, and is a cause of great hope. It's about the completed work of Christ on earth, taking his place at the right hand of the Father and saying, the new kingdom begins now. And this new kingdom makes it possible for us to stand no matter what happens around us, no matter what temples fall. This new kingdom means we can stand firm. It's about an establishment of a new everlasting dominion that will not pass away or be destroyed. A new temple, a new foundation upon which we might stand firm, friends, and win life. That's good news. And what does it mean to be new temple people then? Well, if we look at the model of Christ and the early church, the next slide please, we can see some new temple thinking in action actually. What do we know about um, the way that Christ operated in his ministry? Well, we're told in Luke 9 that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's the opposite of having a temple, isn't it? Having a specific place where I have to be to meet with God. Christ had a nomadic ministry because... He was the walking temple. (laughs) Wherever he went, there was the temple. So he didn't need, it's not that he didn't work in the temple, of course he did, because that's where people went, and he knew that's where people were going. But he didn't need it to meet with God, because he was God and he was the temple. In Matthew 18, we're told, what a fantastic promise. Where two or three people are gathered, Christ is in the midst. You know, you, me, cup of coffee, in a coffee shop, we've just made a temple. How encouraging is that? We're doing it right now. We could be outside in the rather temperate, I'd say, temperatures this morning, and we'd still be a temple, everybody. That's brilliant news. That's brilliant news. Because if this, if, if a terrible fire were to happen, we're going to do a practice later. By the way, do you see how apt that metaphor is as well? We're going to do evacuation practice. Christ tells the people to evacuate. We should be ready to evacuate this temple if necessary and still be the people of God. That's important, isn't it? So we'll do a practice later. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're told, this is even more incredible, your body is now a temple for the Holy Spirit. You, you are, I am. We're all little mini walking temples. How incredible is that? How game-changing is that? That we all walk around uh, as these temples. It's not about architecture, it's about us. The Holy Spirit lives in you and he lives in me. And in doing so, we are holy places, walking temples of the Lord. 
even more powerful when we gather together and support one another. And that's one of the reasons why Paul in Corinthians encourages the Christians there to be as righteous as possible in terms of their sexual morality and the way they behave with one another because they're temples. They're supposed to be holy ground wherever they are. You know, recognize you're a temple is what he's saying. Be a temple in the way that you live because that is what we are. So friends, we must be careful not to build replacement temples. It's just religion. It's just religion. And it will not be a firm foundation for us when the world spirals into chaos, which it is doing. It's just religion. It's not strong enough. Only Christ. And so we're told to stand firm. What do we stand on? Well, we stand on Christ, don't we? Christ is the rock. Psalm 18 says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Architectural image there, my fortress. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And this is when the, te the, te the temple existed. <laughs> you know, the God is my rock. It says, in my distress, I call to the Lord. I cry to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. I didn't have to go to the temple to be heard. He heard me from his temple, it says in the psalm. How brilliant is that? And later it says, he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Friends, we stand firm on the rock, and the rock is Jesus. He is the new temple. He is God himself. He lives in you. He lives in me. He is enough. We stand on him. We don't stand on Sunday mornings. We don't stand in this beautiful room and rely upon it. We stand on Christ. And if there are other things that we're relying on in our lives to get us through the week, we have to evaluate that. We have to evaluate that. You know, for me, it's music. For me, it's music. If I couldn't play an instrument, if I couldn't worship in music, what would that do to my faith? I worry about that. I worry about a dependency that I have on worship as my temple rather than on Christ as my temple to whom I should respond in worship. Do you know what I mean by that? And we all have our own. We're almost there. Everyone okay? Staying with me? Brilliant. Okay, let's be a little bit practical then because I believe even though this passage looks all about Oh, is it about the end times and it is about destruction? Oh, it's terrible. How do you make sense of this passage? It's actually really practical because I believe that in this passage, if you look hard enough, there are instructions for us, advice about how to stand on the rock when everything around you is crumbling. That's good advice for me today. I don't know about you, so I'm going to share it. So if you follow with me, if you like, here's some advice. Number one, Christ says, verse eight, watch out that you are not deceived. Don't look for me in other places. Don't be distracted by other people who offer you a different temple that's not me. Don't be deceived by other things. Stay close to me. Stay close to me and my teaching. Christ alone is the first thing that Jesus says to us. That's one of the ways we stand firm on the rock. Number two, verse nine, he says, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. I know that's easier said than done, but we make a conscious choice as people of faith to not be frightened. I was in Hong Kong not long ago. Do not be frightened. Do not be frightened because you're a person of faith. You're a child of God. 
Do not be frightened by all of these things that are happening around us. We should pray, we should be concerned, but we mustn't be frightened. Number three, this is a difficult one. He says, verse 14 and 15, make up your mind, i.e. decide to, not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Hard times will come upon Christians, because they always have. They are happening all over the world. We're relatively comfortable, I suppose, in this country as Christians, but hard times will, be co will come. But we mustn't worry about it, because Christ will give us the words, and he will help us navigate when those things happen. Christ will give us the words, so don't worry. That's encouraging, isn't it? Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't be deceived. Verse 18. I like this one. He's just said that loads of people are going to die, including Christians. And then straight afterwards he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. And that seems contradictory. Unless you realize that really what he's talking about here is eternal life. Life beyond these few years that we have on this earth. Of course, this part of our life is going to die, but in terms of having eternal perspective on who we are, we won't perish. So don't worry. Don't fear. It's going to be okay because we have an internal perspective on life. There is more to life than this, and that, of course, is the life that we all seek to win. And finally, says at the end, you know, when these things begin to take place, this terrible cataclysmic sacking of Jerusalem, which was just hideous, he says, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. What fantastic promises to you and to me today, when all of these temples around us are being destroyed, how to stand Last thought. Thank you for staying with me. If you follow this story to the end, and you go to the end of Revelation, there is a beautiful, beautiful image of the new heaven and the new earth. I'm sure you know about it, the gleaming streets and the river of life. Beautiful image. You can look at it later, Revelation 21. But there's such a brilliant verse in there that was so apt for this talk. The Apostle John writes this, I did not see a temple in the city, this is the new heaven and the new earth. There's no temple. Because why? The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There is no need for a temple anymore, my friends. And the new heaven and the new earth, the life that we're seeking to win, doesn't need one. Why? Because it's a return to the original design. We're just going to walk together. And if you look at that image, what you have is a beautiful blend of the Garden of Eden meets human civilization, a city. And that's grace, by the way, because we build cities and God said, okay, it wasn't my original design, but we're going we're gonna to make this work. This new design is going to be the Garden of Eden meets the New Jerusalem. And what do we get? This fantastic image of dwelling with God. And it says they will reign forever and ever. It is a temple that will not crumble and fall that doesn't suffer from the Ozymandias problem because it's a God temple. It's the people all together and God himself and Jesus being the temple for us. This is the promise, everybody. That's what it means to win life. This is the promise. Have a look at Revelation 21. If you want a piece of that, then stand firm. 
because that's the life that we're seeking to win. And let's not worry and let's not fear if the temples around us that everyone else is basing their lives on start to crumble because that's not your identity as a Christian. This is the promise. It's an image of the foundation and the life that is promised to us. And this is why, friends, we should stand firm, why we should have faith despite the chaos that we see around us. It's a message of hope, isn't it? Not of destruction. Amen.